0: Thank you for doing that. We uh, actually got to visit Will and Carol a number of years ago when they were in Bangladesh and spent a couple of days with them and their uh, children. And uh, they are wonderful, wonderful missionaries and very very passionate, very energetic, and doing a great work. And, yeah, the whole country of India and then with its relationship to Nepal is, is quite a mess right now. So we do need to continue to intercede Uh, for both countries and especially for our folks that are there a lot of the folks in india um, are not sure they're going to be able to stay the the hindu government is very radical and uh, they're increasing their pressure to get expatriates out and um, so we need to be praying for that as well Uh, tonight i want to do uh, two things one i want to take an exegetical approach as well as a theological approach to Uh, what is sometimes called the terrible doctrine of the Bible and that is the doctrine of hell. And so in Revelation chapter 20 beginning with verse 11 and studying through verse 15, uh, why the doctrine of hell is no laughing matter. And of course I doubt anyone here tonight considers it to be a laughing matter though when I was preparing this message uh, I googled jokes about hell and got 75,900,000 hits and so we all do know that we live in a culture where uh, the word is thrown about rather haphazardly and irresponsibly and lots of uh, jokes are often made about it but when you read what the Bible has to say it's very clear Uh, it is not a laughing matter at all so here's the word of the Lord in Revelation 20 verse 11 then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books, plural, were opened. Then another book, singular, was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Hell is a doctrine that once was believed by virtually everyone in the Western world and a doctrine that people feared. It was never very far from their minds, and it was always part and partial of very serious conversation. But we all, I think, realize tonight that times have changed. Martin Marty, a historian at the University of Chicago, says, and I quote, Hell has disappeared and no one even noticed. Alan Bernstein, who's a professor of medieval history at the University of Arizona, says, "...hell today is enveloped in silence." And even an evangelical theologian like Donald Blesch says, "...the doctrine of hell has passed out of conversation and preaching even in conservative evangelical churches." And yet I would argue brothers and sisters, that hell has not really disappeared. It's rather being ignored, uh, redefined, or even lampooned. Uh, Jeffrey um, Scheller in a U.S. News and World Report article some years ago said, The netherworld has taken on a new image, more of a deep funk than a pit of fire. And so today it is described more often as an Earthly inferno. Hell means the Holocaust. Hell means suffering in Hades. It's hard for the modern mind to understand why a good God would allow such misery on a temporal scale. Imagining one who allows eternal suffering seems not only offensive, but absurd. And perhaps this was expressed as well uh, as anyone has expressed it by a former evangelical theologian who continued to gravitate up until the day that he died in a liberal direction. Uh, this theologian was very influential on people like Paige Patterson and uh, Jerry Vines and Adrian Rogers. His name is Clark Pinnock. And uh, in an article in a conservative evangelical periodical a few years ago, one that I actually was an editor over, we'd asked him to write an article... Uh, on the doctrine of hell which he does not believe in and so he wrote an article on the doctrine of annihilationism but here's what he said and it's a very striking statement but at least he should be commended for his honesty. Let me say at the outset that I consider the concept of hell as endless torment in body and mind an outrageous doctrine, a theological and moral enormity, a bad doctrine of the tradition which needs to be changed. How can Christians possibly project a deity of such cruelty and vindictiveness whose ways include inflicting everlasting torture upon his creatures, however sinful they may have been? Now listen, surely a God who would do such a thing is more nearly like Satan than like God at least by any moral standards, and by the gospel itself. So welcome to the world of modern liberal theology. And yet there's a very simple, simple counter to what is said by theologians like Clark Pinnock, and that is this, it is often said that Jesus said more about hell than anybody else in the Bible. And The fact of the matter is that is absolutely true. Jesus said much more about hell than anybody else in the doctrine. The word hell is a translation of a Greek word, Gehenna. The word Gehenna appears 12 times in the Bible, 11 times on the lips of Jesus. In fact, the only time the word hell, Gehenna, is found in the Bible other than on the lips of Jesus is in James chapter three and verse six, where James says, Sometimes your tongue is set on fire by hell itself. You go into the gospels you discover that Christ warned his listeners to be afraid of Gehenna in Matthew five twenty two. He claimed that only God had the power to cast people into Gehenna, Luke twelve five. He testified that both the soul and the body could go into Gehenna, Matthew 10:28. He said the unsaved could go there with two eyes, Mark 9:47, two hands, Mark 9:43, and two feet, Mark 9:45. He also said it was a place marked by fire in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 22, and in his contrast between the sheep, the saved, and the goats, the unsaved Jesus said that the unsaved eventually would go into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels, Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41. Let me raise a question and answer it. Was hell created by God for human beings? The answer is no. God created hell for the devil and his angels. But... Humanity does go there and humanity willingly chooses to go there when they reject God's offer of salvation made possible in Jesus Christ. A friend of mine, Don Whitney, in a very fine article on hell a few years ago, summarizes it in ten propositions. Number one, hell is real. Number two, hell is separation from God. Number three, hell is for all the accursed ones. Number four, hell is eternal. Number five, Hell includes fire. Number six, hell is a prepared place. Seven, hell is eternity with the devil and his angels. Eight, hell is inevitable if you have never come to Christ. Nine, hell is inescapable once you are there. But ten, praise God, hell is avoidable if you will repent and believe in Jesus. And then when you add the story of the rich man and Lazarus, in Luke chapter 16 verses 19 through 31 it becomes crystal clear that our Lord believed that hell was real. He leaves no possibility for the doctrine of universalism that is ultimately everyone will be saved, nor does he leave any room for the doctrine of annihilationism and that is the teaching that all who are lost will eventually go into non-existence. They will simply cease to exist. And so I know Jesus believed in hell because He taught it. And I also know that Jesus believed in hell because of the cross. In fact, there's another question we need to answer before we move into the text of Scripture, and that is this very simple, basic question. And by the way, as someone who's been in ministry now for over 38 years, I have been asked this question over and over and over and over in my life. Why would God punish forever a finite offense? Why would God punish a human being forever when all they committed were particular, momentary, finite offenses against Him? And I would say that the answer to that question is twofold. Number one, sin against God is far more serious than most people imagine. Sin against God is far more serious than most people imagine. It is an act of insurrection against an infinite, worthy, and holy sovereign to put it in a a proportional argument. Sin is not a slap in the face of a mouse. Sin is the repeated slap in the face of a king who is the king of the universe. But then secondly, and we were blessed to have this individual in chapel yesterday and today, Dr. Russell Moore, who is the president of our uh, Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, said this, and I quote, Hell is the final handing over of the rebel to who he wants to be. And it is awful. The sinner in hell... Now listen very carefully. We're putting our theological thinking caps on, as I would say if I were talking to a bunch of teenagers. And I know that I'm not talking to a bunch of teenagers. The sinner in hell does not become morally neutral. We must not imagine the damned displaying gospel repentance and longing for the presence of Christ. They do not in hell love the Lord, their God, with their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Instead, in hell, one is now handed over to the full display of his nature apart from grace. And this nature is seen to be satanic. The condemnation then continues forever and ever. Why? Because the sin does and so if that is kind of a basic fundamental theological foundation, let's walk through the text and let me make three observations about what we call the great white throne judgment. Number one, unbelievers will stand before the sovereign God of the universe. Verses 11 through 15 of Revelation chapter 20. We've seen the millennial kingdom in chapter 20 verses 1 through 6. We saw the final rebellion and defeat of Satan in chapter 20, verses 7 through 10. But now John says, I saw something new. Then I saw, verse 11, a great white throne and him who was seated on it. John MacArthur calls these verses the most serious, sobering, and tragic passage in all of the Bible. It is a vision of what he calls here a great white throne. It is the place of final and eternal judgment. That it is white symbolizes the holiness and the purity of the one who is sitting on the throne. It magnifies His glory and His majesty. Our great God in all of His power and sovereignty is sitting on this throne now. Though God the Father and God the Son share equally the heavenly throne, it does seem that Scripture indicates that it is the Lord Jesus in particular who does preside at the final judgment here at the great white throne. You say, why would you say that? Well, I've got several passages of Scripture. I'll read two of them, but give you the reference for all of them if you want. John chapter 5, verse 22, 26 and 27. John chapter 5, verse 22, 26 and 27. Hear the word of the Lord. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself, and He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. John chapter 5. You have the same idea in Acts chapter 10 and verse 42, in Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31, in Romans chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, and I'll read one other text, 2 Timothy 4.1, hear the word of the Lord, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by His appearing and His kingdom. And so though dogmatism is unwarranted, it sure seems to me that the thrust of Scripture is that it is the Lord Jesus who is seated upon the great white throne for this final eternal judgment. All judgment in some sense has been committed to the Son. Well, what happens when this vision unfolds? Look at the next phrase in verse 11. Some have called this the uncreation. From His presence... Earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. From the presence of the sun, both earth and sky run uh, before the eternal state of the new heaven, the new earth and the new Jerusalem in chapter 21 and chapter 22. Very clearly, um, uh, John is drawing from the book of Isaiah. In particular, chapter 51 and verse 6. Listen to Isaiah 51 verse 6. The heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner, but my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Uh, Matt Chandler is a wonderful pastor in the uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area, wonderful communicator, very capable theologian as well. And in trying to help his, he has a very, very young congregation. I mean, we're talking about someone my age, you know, is like ready for the crib. Uh It's basically a 35 and under crowd. And uh, they come by the thousands because he is such a wonderful teacher and such an excellent uh, theologian. And here's what he says about this great judgment that we're looking at. If God is most concerned about His namesake, then hell ultimately exists because of the belittlement of God's name. And therefore, our response to the biblical reality of hell cannot, for our own safety, be the further belittlement of God's name. Are you tracking with that? Someone who says hell cannot be real, or we can't all deserve it even if it is real, because God is love, is saying that the name and the renown and the glory of Christ are not That big of a deal. And yet the Bible is very clear. The glory and the renown and the majesty of Jesus Christ is a huge deal in the eyes of the Heavenly Father. So when sinners stand before God at the great white throne, they will realize the name and the renown and the glory of Christ is a very big deal. Deal, And this is the God that they will be standing before. Unbelievers will stand before the sovereign God, the Lord Jesus, the one who is over the universe. Number two, unbelievers will also be judged for their personal righteousness and not the imputed righteousness of Christ. They will be judged for their personal righteousness, not the imputed righteousness of Christ. Let me read verse 12 and verse 13 again. "...and I saw the dead..." He is speaking here of the spiritually dead. We who have trusted in Christ are spiritually alive. These who have not trusted Christ are spiritually dead. They, the great ones and the small ones. They were standing before the throne. And books, plural, were opened. And he tells us in just a moment that these are the books that record the works of unbelievers. Books were open. In contrast, another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, second time for emphasis, according to what they had done. In its context, one of the most wonderful verses in the Bible is Acts chapter 10 and verse 34 where the Bible says God shows no partiality. Doesn't matter whether you're red, white, black or brown, doesn't matter whether you're wealthy or poor, doesn't matter what side of the tracks you come from. The grace of God and the blood of Christ is extended to each and every one of us who will come to him by faith. There is no discrimination at the cross. Well, what is true when it comes to salvation is also true when it comes to judgment. There will be no discrimination at the great white throne. It will not matter your ethnicity, It will not matter your social status. It will not matter what your economic conditions were in this world. At the great white throne, everyone stands equally before a righteous God. Now, even though I don't believe there is any discrimination in those categories, there is going to be a distinction made, if you like, we could use the word a discrimination made between uh, degrees of punishment, but I will get to that in just a moment. I also think it's very important for us to recognize a distinction between two major judgments in the Bible, the one we're looking at tonight, the great white throne judgment, but another judgment that you find in Paul's letters called the judgment seat. Of Christ, And in fact, if you will take the handout that you have and just flip it over, you will see that though He is the judge at both places, the judgment seat of Christ is a much different judgment than the great white throne judgment. Now, let me quickly say before I go on, there's some friends of mine, good Bible teachers, who think the judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne are the same thing. Uh, I respectfully disagree. I believe only believers are at the judgment seat of Christ. Only unbelievers are at the great white throne. And when you look at the content of the judgment, I think there's good reason for making that argument. Look at it with us. Who are the persons judged? Well, at the judgment seat of Christ, believers only who have the imputed righteousness of Christ. At the great white throne, you look at the verses, there's no indication of any saved people being there. So only unbelievers who stand before God in their own righteousness, are at the great white throne. The scriptural texts that deal with these two judgments are different, and the basis of the judgment is radically different. What is the basis of judgment for you and for me who have put our faith and trust in Christ? Faithfulness in Christ and the resultant good works that we do for Him, even to the extent of our motivation. Let me make it very personal. If I'm doing what I'm doing tonight out of proper motivation, that is love for Christ and a desire to love you well and to serve you well, then then I will be blessed and God will honor that. If I do it because I like to be up in front of people and uh, I like for people to pat me on the back and tell me what a wonderful Bible teacher I am and I do it for financial gain uh, primarily, then the Bible says, good for you, you've got your reward now down here. See, God is not only concerned that we do the right thing. God is also concerned that we do it for the right reason, with the right motivation. In contrast, at the great white throne, their judgment is rejection of Christ. And therefore, they stand again before Him in their own righteousness. What are the results of the judgment seat of Christ? Rewards, are loss of rewards, but not our salvation which is secure. Uh, we are saved eternally in Christ, and so when we stand before Him at the judgment seat of Christ, our salvation is not uh, at stake. It is the good works that we have performed for Him since we came to Him in faith and in repentance. On the other hand, the result of the great white throne is eternity in hell, or what we see in this text called the Lake of fire. Well, what does John see here in verse 12? Look at it. He doesn't say, I saw both believers and unbelievers. I saw the living and the dead. No, no, no. I saw the dead. He sees Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 kind of people. He sees those who have died apart from Christ. And in just in case you don't get it the first time, four times, you will see the word dead in these verses. Furthermore, the words dead or death, put that with it, appear seven times in these verses. Furthermore, he tells us there, it is both the great and the small who are standing before the throne. Once more, let me emphasize one's status in this life will have no bearing at this judgment. But then now, let's read the text very carefully. John says he sees books, plural, opened. Question, what are these books? Answer, these are the books of works, which contains every action, every thought, every emotion of all unsaved persons. There have been times when I've had people say, well, it's something akin uh, to a heavenly video recorder. The fact of the matter is, that is not even enough. It is more than that. It is the most comprehensive judgment one could possibly conceive of as God sees us for exactly who we are in every facet of our being. And by the way, this idea is repeated continually throughout Scripture. Listen to these verses. I'll just read them for you. You can jot down the references. Psalm 44:21. Would not God discover this? For He knows the secrets of the heart. Ecclesiastes 12:14 for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing whether good or evil. Matthew 12:37 Jesus said for the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Luke 8:17 just this last one for nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. That is the precision with which the Lord Jesus is going to judge the dead. Now, why is their name found in these books of works? Because their name is not found in the book of life. In unbelief, they rejected the perfect imputed righteousness of Christ. And so in a real sense... They stand spiritually naked before the penetrating omniscience of the Lord Jesus Christ who sees everything about them. Now, look at what it says in verse 13 emphasizing the fact that no one escapes this judgment. He tells us the sea, which is often the image of the evil turmoil of the world system, the sea forfeits its dead. Death, that which claims the body, gives up its dead. Hades, that which claims the soul, gives up its dead. And one theologian said it very strikingly. Listen to this. With resurrected bodies fit for hell. With resurrected bodies fit for hell. People come from every corner of the earth and they will stand before righteous King Jesus. Now, I want to address another very important theological issue that we need to raise and have a good answer for. Verse 12 tells us, "...the spiritually dead are judged by..." Look at it. "...what was written in the book..." That is, the books of works, "...according to what they've done." And verse 13 repeats it and reinforces it. "...they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done." Now... Here's the and Let me lay the whole thing out and then give you biblical support for it. At the great white throne, every single person will be judged fairly and equally. Okay? At the great white throne, every unbeliever, the spiritually dead, they will be judged fairly and equally. Okay? But, they will not all receive the same penalty and punishment. They will not all receive the same penalty and punishment. Now let me develop it further. All of them, without exception, will be thrown into the lake of fire. We see that there in verse 15. <clears throat> you see it again in chapter 21 and verse 8. They will be, have their portion in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So, all will be cast into the lake of fire. All will be judged equally and fairly. However, there will be varying degrees of punishment and suffering in hell. You say, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that, and I've said this several times through our study of Revelation, not the book of Revelation, but God's revealing of Himself. Revelation brings responsibility. The more you know, the greater is your accountability and responsibility. To say it in the imagery of Revelation chapter 20. Hell will be terrible for everybody, but it will not be equally hot. Hell will be terrible for everybody, but it will not be equally hot. Now you say, Where did you get that? I've I've not heard that before. Where did you get that? Well, I got it from Jesus, okay? And let me tell you where I got it from Jesus. You write down the verses. You listen to what our Lord said. I've got three of them. Matthew chapter 10, verse 14 and 15. Hear the word of our Lord. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, It will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. It will be nicer for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than on that town that rejected the Lord Jesus. It gets worse. Matthew 11, verses 21 through 24. Woe to you, Corazine. Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you, It will have remained until this day, but I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 40. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who... Like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So yes, the Bible is clear. All will be cast into the lake of fire. All will suffer terribly. But there will not be identical degrees of torment in the lake of fire. But don't get hung up on that and say, well, good, that, that means I've got a, a, a grandparent or I've got an aunt or an uncle or I've got a mom or a dad or I've got a best friend and I have little doubt that they're in hell today, but you know they weren't as bad as you know Hitler or Stalin or Idi Amin or Pol Pot or anyone like that. So hell will not be as bad for them as it will be for the others. That's true, but let me tell you something. Hell's going to be bad. It's going to be terrible. It's going to be horrible. There is not one stitch of joy in a place where you are separated from the presence of an eternal, loving God gracious, compassionate God. There's nothing good about you being there. When people sometimes say, well, I want to go to hell because that's where all my friends are. You'll have no friends in hell. You and all of your evil and wickedness will reach your full potential in that world. And I got news for you. People like that are not going to be your friends. No, there's no good thing present in hell. Why? Because God is not there in His grace, His love and His mercy. Randy Alcorn, who's written a wonderful book on heaven, has also said some pretty insightful things about hell. And he says this, quote, The unbeliever's wish to be away from God turns out to be his worst nightmare. And C.S. Lewis, that wonderful Christian apologist said, To enter heaven is to become more human than you ever succeeded in being on earth. To enter hell is to be banished from humanity. So unbelievers will be judged for their righteousness, not the righteousness of Christ. And then finally, number three, unbelievers will spend eternity separated from God in the lake of fire. You know, we need to be honest. Human language is really incapable of describing, on the one hand, the glories of heaven, and on the other hand, the horrors of hell. Take all the images that appear in the Bible, including the lake of fire here and the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Multiply it 10 billion times and you will still not give an adequate description of those who experienced the second death. Many of you will know the name Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was without any question the greatest theologian America has ever produced. He lived from 1703 to 1758. He wrote volumes and volumes and volumes and volumes. But what he is famous for is one sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And in that sermon, here's just a little paragraph of what he said. And it is said that when he preached that sermon, that people would grab the pews in front of them uh, and dig their nails into the wood, so fearful that they might be cast into the hell that very moment. I would have loved to well, I don't if I'd love to hear preaching like that or not, but I at least would like to entertain what it might have sounded like. Well, here's the words he said: "The pit is prepared. The fire is made ready. The furnace is now hot, ready to receive them. The flames do now rage and glow. the glittering sword is ready and held over them, and the pit has opened her mouth under them, O sinner. Consider the fearful danger you are in. The Bible says here in verse 14 that death and Hades, body and soul joined together are cast into hell, the lake of fire. This is the second death. I I many times just run the list. The, The second death is the same thing as spiritual death, is the same thing as eternal death, There may be a difference of emphasis depending on which of these words is used, but they're all referring to the same thing. Spiritual death is the second death. It is eternal death. Permanent death, separated from God forever, alone, trapped, imprisoned, no way out, no second chance. Hell, as one man said, is never seeing God ever. Oh yes, there is a sense in which He's there because He is the omnipresent One, but lost people have no sense or awareness of His gracious presence, only His terrible wrath. And finding their name absent from the book of life, they are all, it says, each and every one thrown into the lake of fire. One more time, this language leaves no room for universalism. Eventually everyone is going to be saved. It leaves no room for annihilationism. The dead simply cease to exist and go into nothingness. It does not allow for that. Uh, there's no doctrine of purgatory here or anywhere else in the Bible. And once more, no opportunity for a second chance. This is eternal punishment resulting in physical, spiritual, and mental misery forever and ever and ever, indeed, as we read previously in Revelation chapter fourteen and verse eleven, they will be tormented without rest, day and night, forever. Let me close. Dorothy Sayer was a very close friend of C.S. Lewis. Uh, she died the year I was born, in 1957. But when it comes to the doctrine of hell, this. Uh, very insightful woman, uh, was filled with wisdom when she talked about the issue at stake when it comes to hell. And I quote her, not very long. Listen. There seems to be a kind of conspiracy, especially among middle-aged writers, of vaguely liberal tendency to forget or to conceal where the doctrine of hell comes from. In other words, we want to pretend we don't know where it comes from. And because... If we do identify where it comes from, we've got a real problem. It's kind of like the issue of homosexuality and same-sex marriage. Uh, where do we get the idea that God created us uniquely for a man and a woman? Well, we get it from God. Well, Jesus didn't speak of it. Well, yes, He did. He quotes Psalm or Genesis 2 and says, "...Have you not read that He who made them in the beginning made them male and female, and therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh?" We get it from Jesus. Well, as we've already seen, you get your doctrine of hell from Jesus too, and that's where Dorothy's going, so I kind of already exposed her here, but we'll go ahead. They want to keep hidden where the doctrine of hell comes from. One finds frequent references to the cruel and abominable doctrine of hell or the childish and grotesque medieval imagery of physical fire and worms. But, The case is quite otherwise. Let us face the facts. The doctrine of hell is not medieval. It is Christ. It is not a device of medieval priestcraft for frightening people into giving money to the church. It is Christ's deliberate judgment on sin. The imagery of the undying worm And the unquenchable fire derives not from medieval superstition, but originally from the prophet Isaiah, and it was Christ who emphatically used it. Now listen to what she says. One cannot get rid of it without tearing the New Testament to tatters. We cannot repudiate hell without altogether repudiating Christ. And so why do I believe in the doctrine of hell? Because I uh, take delight in the idea of people suffering for all of eternity? No. I don't take delight in that. I don't think Jesus did either. That's why He went to the cross. You see, brothers and sisters, if there is no hell, then it makes no sense that God would sacrifice His Son needlessly and uselessly. It makes no sense. And Spurgeon understood that, and I close with this. Think lightly of hell, and you will soon think lightly of the cross. He who does not believe that God will cast unbelievers into hell will also not be sure that he takes believers into heaven. Think lightly of hell, and you will soon think lightly of the cross. Brothers and sisters, we should think lightly of neither. Let's pray together. Father, we have looked at a doctrine tonight that is not a joyful one to study, and yet we need to because it's in Your Word. And Lord, we need to understand that there is coming a judgment day uh, when unbelievers will stand before You and be fully exposed for all that they've done and said. And Lord, unfortunately and tragically, they will stand there not in the imputed righteousness of Christ, which we have, but they will stand there in their own righteousness, which is no righteousness at all. And Lord, again, we know that hell is real because of the cross. We know that hell is real because Jesus said so. And therefore, we must warn others of this terrible doctrine. Lord, years ago, I heard a Jewish evangelist by the name of Hyman Appleman say, if I could scare people from going to hell, I would. And Lord, when I read this text tonight, I understand why he felt that way. Lord, may we likewise... Be so aware of the truth of this doctrine that we will let nothing get in the way of us taking the gospel both across the street and around the world that men and women might not stand before you in judgment but stand before you in salvation, standing before you in the righteousness of Jesus which is available to all who repent of their sin and put their faith and trust in you. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Next week, we will have our next-to-last study in Revelation. We'll spend two weeks looking at a wonderful doctrine, the doctrine of heaven. And I'll look forward to seeing you then. Blessings. Thank you.